Now's the time for you, if you'd like to take out the insert uh, in the worship bulletin, where you once again have what was a good portion of the third reading of the gospel lesson uh, in John's gospel, uh, but also then uh, some fill-ins for, for the message today. Now, this is the, the third week of our Jesus, Son of God series, a life like no other that changes our life forever. And if you remember, three weeks ago, we went to Jesus' inauguration. It was an inauguration like none other. Jesus was baptized by John. And while he was in the Jordan River, we're told that, that the, the heavens opened up and God the Father spoke, very special event, and God the Holy Spirit fluttered down in the form of a, of a dove and, and uh, over those waters and it landed on Jesus. And God the Father said, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. Then last week we're told that Jesus filled with the Spirit was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to go toe-to-toe against our greatest spiritual opponent, the devil, where he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet remain without sin. And he defeats Satan in every temptation. And that brings good news to our heart because he did it for us. Well, after that, Jesus starts calling his 12 disciples. And, and he begins calling them to follow him, and, and I don't have, we're not covering that this morning. Not all of them have been called yet, but many of them have. And our text today takes place three days later. Now, Jesus uh, travels back north. He's now back in Galilee, northern Israel, with his newly called disciples. He joins up with his mother, Mary, and they are invited to a wedding in Cana. Uh, Cana is still northern Israel. It's like the southern part of northern Israel, if that, if that makes sense. Now, Jesus is 30 years old. His disciples, we don't know their exact age, but probably about his same age or, or, or slightly younger. Mary is approximately 45 years old. And again, they are invited to a wedding. Now, I want you to think about weddings that you have attended over the years. For me as a pastor, because of my, my job, I've attended a lot of weddings I've officiated over them. But the, the wedding that I remember the most, as far as being the most nervous for, was my brother's wedding. Because I wasn't officiating, but I was the best man. And I was only 20 years old. And I remember being very nervous about having to, to give a speech at the, the wedding reception. But I also remember at that time, it was before I was married, attending his wedding, wondering and, and thinking about, will I get married? What will my wedding day be like? To whom will I get married? And, and, and perhaps you, before you were married, or if you're single now, perhaps when you attend weddings, you have that question. Um, I, I definitely did. Now, again, uh, they're invited to uh, th- this wedding, and with, with that in mind, listening into to the opening verses. John chapter 2. On the third day after calling his disciples, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no wine. Now, weddings in Jesus' day lasted for for days. Entire communities many times were invited. 
Now, we don't know, was, was Jesus, how did he know the wedding couple? Was he related to them? Mary attended, so maybe it was a, a relative somehow uh, of, of Jesus. They're, they're there, and, and again, these are community events, and food would be provided, wine would be provided, and for a married couple to run out of either food or wine would be quite embarrassing. Now, at this, you know that, that, that Jesus performs his very first miracle of, of changing water into wine. Now, would that be the first miracle you would do? If you were the Son of God and you had a limited power, would you make your inaugural miracle a miracle of changing water into wine? Um, it, it almost seems like, you know, it's like, uh, Why? Why would you begin with such a lesser miracle of changing water into wine? Okay, so the, the wedding is only going to last for two days, not three days. Big deal. But it was Jesus' inaugural miracle. And he chose this event to show, give his first sign of being Messiah. Now, now verse 11 really is the key to understanding this. Verse 11 What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This was the first of his miraculous signs. Again, we have 37 recorded in Scripture. This was the very first. So what does does the Bible say? Through this sign, through this miracle, he revealed his glory. Another word for glory is magnificence. And so today, we want to see magnificence like none other. Now, I said before that we might think, well, this is a lesser miracle. Standing a wedding celebration for a few more more days, big deal. But actually, it is a big deal. Again, we are told that, that Jesus revealed his glory, his magnificence by this miracle. And this morning, we're going to see in this miracle who he was, what he provides, what he came to do, and finally, what he has has to offer. First of all, it tells us who he was. Verses 7 through 10. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, draw some water out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Now, in this account, there is a person who is called the master of the banquet. Who is this person, the master of the banquet? As we look at weddings today, there isn't any one person that perhaps fills the the shoes of the master of the banquet, but we can come close. We might call him today the toast master. This is the person that, uh, you know, with with the wine, let's make a toast to the bride and groom, right? Um, It's also the person that is hired to make things happen at the reception, 
We might compare the, the, the master of the banquet to the DJ today, right? So everyone's seated, and, and you have your hors d'oeuvres, and, you know, it's time for the wedding party to come in to the, uh, for the celebration. And the DJ says, okay, everybody out on your feet, and let's welcome the wedding party. And, you know, it starts with the, the best man and the, the matron of honor, and they come in dancing and stuff. And, um, you know, this is the guy that says, okay, now it's time for the, for the mother-son dance. Right? So it's the life of the party, this master of the banquet. But I'm here to tell you that the true master of the banquet was not this man, but Jesus. Because Jesus provided and supplies what was lacking at that wedding feast, Jesus proves himself to be the real master of the banquet that day. So what does this show us? It shows us who he is. Who is Jesus? Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of festival joy. He's master or Lord of the ceremony. Festival joy. Wine was associated with joy. Again, a wedding feast, and and there would be food, and there would be wine. And, and festival joy associated with wine. Now, a little bit more needs to be said about the wine. We're told that there were six stone jars, each holding between 20 and 30 gallons of water. Uh, this was typical. The, the, the leaders in the church of that day, they were in a ceremonial washings and, and these large pitchers of water, and, and they, would, they would use it for washing their hands and different things like that. But between 20 and 30 gallons. So uh, water in the pitchers, uh, some levels lower than the others, but these, they could hold up to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill them up to the brim. So th- those jars that are not completely full, top them off with water to the brim. And then Jesus miraculously changes the six large jars of water into wine. Now, if each one could hold 30 gallons, how much wine is that? And the answer is 180 gallons. 180 gallons of wine. Now let's put it in the terms that perhaps we can better relate to. The typical bottle of wine today, 720 milliliters. How many bottles of wine is this? And the answer is 900. 900 bottles of wine. Now it's not just the the quantity of wine but the quality of the wine. So later, the master of ceremony, when he has the first sip of that wine, what does he say? He says, uh, you have saved the best for, the, for last. It was good quality wine. Now, now, now the Martes are into quality wine. And when I say quality wine, I mean, I mean the uh, 14 hands hot to trot Costco for about $7 a bottle. If you look at that, that's pretty inexpensive wine. But still, 900 bottles, that would be over $6,000 worth of wine. Now, a good quality bottle of wine is about $30 per bottle. Do the math. That's $18,900 worth of wine. Tim Meyer, who knows a lot about wine, 
He said that he once touched a bottle of wine that was bottled in the 1700s, and the price of that wine was $250,000 for one bottle. Now, now what's the point here? Is Jesus the Lord of the wine? Did Jesus provide that much wine, 900 gallons, and, and Jesus is saying, party, party, party? Is that what we are to get out of this? The answer is no. It's not a sin unless you're underage to drink alcohol. It is a sin, however, to get drunk. There's no way that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who came to die for, for all sin, that he would say it's okay to get drunk. It's not. The Bible warns strongly against the, the dangers, the sin of, of alcohol and drinking too much. So that, that cannot be at all the point that Jesus is making. So what point is he making? Well, my friends, Jesus does not do anything half-heartedly. Not at all. Now, another way of putting it is this. Jesus didn't always change water into wine, but when he does, he makes 900 gallons. The point is is that that, that Jesus, what he did was not half-hearted, and he goes over the top for this wedding couple. By the way, they probably, they probably were not very well off financially. I picture a young couple struggling, right? They run out of wine. They don't want to do that, but they did. It would have been very embarrassing for them. And what does Jesus do? It, 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 he goes above and beyond, and he produces 900 gallons of wine. Um, that would have been, for them, a very generous gift. And this leads us uh, to our second point. This miracle shows us what Jesus provides for us. And the answer is Jesus provides his over-the-top best for us. Jesus provides his over-the-top best for them and for us. That's who Jesus is. He's very generous as our Lord in the gifts that he gives And the greater gifts are always spiritual. Jesus has over-the-top spiritual gifts for you and for me. Come glory side of things, after Jesus returns to judge the world, we're going to see just how over-the-top generous Jesus is in every way. But he's he's that way right now for each and every one of us. What about us? The Bible says that that Jesus is worth and worthy of our best. He deserves our best. Are we giving Jesus our best? The best of our abilities to serve him here. The best of our talents, the best of our time. The best of our income. In the Old Testament book of Malachi, that was one of the things that Malachi pointed out, is that you're not giving the Lord your best. You're giving him your leftovers. Give the Lord your best, your first fruits in your offerings. You cannot outgive him. He'll give back to you far beyond what you give him. But be generous. Give God your best in response to his love for you. But this miracle, again, it, it shows us Jesus provides his over-the-top best, not just for them, but for us. Now let's look at what led up to this miracle. Uh, we, we jumped to verse, verses 3 through 5. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to Jesus, they have no more wine. 
I kind of wonder if in that setting, you know, people there, oh great, they ran out of wine. Hope this isn't any picture of their marriage. Not going to last very long. Probably somebody there thinking that. Woman, Jesus replied, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, I need to share with you how I interpreted this passage for the longest time, but I've since changed my way of looking at it. For years, I interpreted this this, this way, that uh, it's not Jesus' time. He's not ready to perform a miracle yet. But his mother is, is, is kind of forcing his hand. Mary knows who Jesus is. She gave birth to him. She remembers the promises of the angels and of Simeon. You know, he's the Messiah. He's begun his ministry. He's been inaugurated. But he has not shown himself yet as far as a sign. So she's forcing his hand. And it's as if uh, Jesus is saying, Mom, I'm not ready to perform my first miracle. Well, okay, I guess I will, right? He performs a miracle. That's how I interpreted it. That was not a correct way to interpret it. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the most influential person who has ever lived, second to none. Everything Jesus did was very calculated. Jesus gave a lot of thought to begin revealing his glory through this very first miracle. So how do we understand it then? Woman, this is not my time. Why do you involve me? And then he goes ahead and performs the miracle. Well, Jesus gives us a clue. Jesus tells Mary, this is not yet my time. If we let Scripture interpret Scripture, are there any other places where Jesus refers to his time? And the answer is yes. Two other places, both recorded in John's Gospel. Uh, In in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8, Jesus refers to his time as the time when he would give up his life and suffer and die on the cross. That's what he meant by my time. My time to suffer and die. Now, could it be Jesus is uh, 30 years old, He's at this wedding. Could it be that he's thinking about his own wedding? And you might be thinking, well, Jesus never got married in in the the way that we get married, a, a man and woman. And you're correct. Jesus did not marry a specific woman. However, the Bible is filled with this incredible image of God marrying us. Old Testament, New Testament, this is there. God marrying us. I mentioned before, when I was the best man at my, my, my brother's wedding, what was I thinking of? I was nervous. What am I going to, going to say? But I was also wondering, will I ever get married? To whom will I get married? Now, if that's true with us, it's infinitely true with Jesus. That he could be thinking about his own marriage. This marriage that the Bible describes between us, his church, and he as our God. Let me give you some examples of this. Isaiah uh, 54, verse 5. 
It says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. Isaiah 62, verse 5. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God rejoices over you. Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 32. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. Hosea, chapter 2, verse 16. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me, quote, my husband. You will no longer call me, quote, my master. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus has begun his ministry, and he's being criticized. Being criticized that Jesus is associating and joyfully with, with sinners, and, and, and his, his followers were not fasting like, like John's disciples were. And so we're, this is recorded. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn when he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. The book of Ephesians, chapter 5. Paul makes this comparison. He tells wives, lovingly submit to your husband's leadership. Husbands, lovingly love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Then, then Paul says this. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So profound mystery, Christ and his church. Jesus, in a biblical way, as God, he desires this close relationship to us, his church. One final example, the book of Revelation, the very end. We have described for us the bride of Christ, beautifully uh, adorned, coming from heaven. It's the church. And what's about to take place? A wedding feast, the banquet, to begin eternity. It's all there in Scripture. Now, Now, Jesus knew that for this to happen... For, for Jesus to get married to us, his church, something had to happen. He had to suffer and die. That was his time. So, so let's personalize this a little bit, if you will. Jesus wants to be many things to you and relate to you in many ways. Jesus wants to be your good shepherd and you his sheep, his follower. And he is. Jesus wants to relate to you as... Your, as his, as you, Jesus wants you to relate to him as his subject, and he is the king. And again, he is. Jesus wants to relate to you as the way, the truth, and the life. And again, he is. But Jesus also wants to relate to you as a husband relates to a wife. It's a mystery, but we believe it. So by Jesus making reference to his time, his time had not yet come, Jesus is looking forward again to what he is going to do, lay down his life for his bride. At least this is our second point. So this miracle indirectly shows us that Jesus came to lay down his life for his bride.
want to point out a few more things from our text, uh, verses 7 through, through 11. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Canaan and Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus saved, more than likely, a young couple from embarrassment, running out of wine. But in so doing, um, it shows us how, what it is that Jesus gives to us. It's the same thing that, that he gave to them. Uh, did you notice that uh, after Jesus performs the miracle, then he says, now give some uh, to the master's ceremony? So the servants who knew that Jesus performed the miracle, they give wine to the master's ceremonies. And what does the master's ceremony assume? He assumes the groom was responsible, right? He gives credit to the groom for something he didn't do, providing quality wine at the end. My friends, that's what Jesus does. It's called grace. It's unmerited love. He provides grace for, for, the, for the bride and groom. He gives them something that they did not earn, and he gives them credit for it. So this, finally, uh, this miracle shows us what Jesus has to offer. Two things. Jesus offers his unmerited grace. When it comes to our salvation, we have blown it. Right? We, we cannot earn it. Yet, God the Father looks at us He sees Jesus. What Jesus earned for us is given to us. We didn't earn it. God says it's yours. And you know what? When I see you, I see my son. You are my son and daughter. He gives to us again what Jesus earned. It's called unmerited grace. One final point. Why is it that majority of people in the United States today are not worshiping in a Christian church? Why is, it, why is it that the majority of people here now, Tuki, have probably slept in, are probably just getting up, and have no desire to go to a Christian worship service? What I have found is this. A lot of people, they grew up as children, they, they perhaps went to church, and, and they, they became adults, and, and, and they basically said, you know what, um, I, I don't want to have my joy taken away from me. Uh, Christianity is um, you must do these things. You must put your nose to the grind. You must give up all joy, follow these rules. And as an adult, I, I don't want that. You know, that sort of thinking couldn't be any further from the truth. Jesus did not come to kill joy at all. Jesus came to give us joy. Not just a temporary joy, a joy that lasts forever. So this miracle, again, it shows us what Jesus offers. 
He offers his unmerited grace to us, and he offers true, lasting joy. If we could have been there at this wedding at Cana, and if we could experience again this miracle of Jesus, the master of the the ceremony didn't know who provided it. His disciples did. When his disciples saw what Jesus did, what did they do? They put their faith in him. My friends, Jesus is the Lord of lasting joy. He has so much more to give to us. Continue to celebrate, continue to believe in him as his first disciples did. Amen. And now may God's true peace, which surpasses our understanding, may keep our hearts and minds through faith in him. Amen. It's time now uh, to give the Lord our best uh, in offering.